Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Chaim Breshith Jabner, a filmmaker, photographer, and a film studies scholar and professional research associate at the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS. He's the editor of The Gulf War and The New World Order. His films include the widely shown State of Danger, a documentary on the first Palestinian Intifada, and London is Burning, after the 2011 riots. He has written in the Israel Haaretz and the Cairo-based Al-Haram Weekly. His latest book is the novel Yaffa Blues, currently being prepared for publication. His latest book is the novel Jaffa Blues, currently being prepared for publication. The novel deals with life in Jaffa during the late 1940s to the mid-1950s through the eyes of a child of two survivors of Auschwitz. Before coming to the University of East London, Professor Breshis was Dean of the School of Media, Film, and Cultural Studies at Sapir College, Israel. He founded and chaired the Storot Cinematheque in southern Israel and its Cinema South Film Festival, still running successfully today. In 2001, he was chair and writer of the special report on public broadcasting in Israel, commissioned by the Ministry of Culture and Sport, and published in 2001, with the government accepting all its recommendations only to avoid putting them into practice. In 2010, he set up the Museum Integrated Digital Archiving System at the University of East London, a center for high-resolution scanning of artworks, which can be gleaned on Midas. His latest book is An Army Like No Other, How the IDF Made a Nation, published by Verso last year. His latest film is in post-production, The Mind of the Occupier, about Israel's occupation of Palestine. I welcome Chaim Breshith Jabner to Savage Minds. We've known each other since 2003, I think. It was, yes, it was 2003, the summer. Cyprus. And that first day I met you at that conference, it was an evening, I think, when we started talking, you mm -hmm. and Yosefa were talking about what I should expect or not expect as well. It was my first time to Israel and I was about to embark on field work. And I tell you, my first instinct when I got to Israel, it hit me right at the airport. It was when I was put into Everything was there but the lamp shining on me, but I was put into a several hour interrogation. My hair was styled, I went through a Pippi Longstocking phase and I think they were phased by the fact I had a, a professorial invitation to come to Israel to do research and I looked like Pippi Longstocking. Anyways, I was sitting at this desk of an interrogator asking me what I was doing in Cyprus as he informed me, you know the last suicide bomber we had here was trained in Cyprus. And I said, well, I am so sorry about that. I did not know that, but I can assure you I was at, you know, and I pointed out the two conferences. I still had the brochures in my bag and they kept me there until I arrived around one in the morning. I didn't leave the airport until about 4.30 in the morning, five. You never and told so I, us that. I didn't tell you that, that's true. No. It, it, was, it was actually, a very small pimple in what I experienced there because mm. I had to go through many machsam. That was shocking to me. Within less than a month, I was in a, a state of fear whenever I had to go through them because there was so much, and I don't want to overuse this word, but in the very basic sense of the word trauma, there was a lot of trauma associated with this because you could see people 
I made a film. I snuck a camera into my shirt and I filmed a machsam because people would not believe it and I realized I had to film it. So I turned it into a short film and the things that people were carrying with them, two men carrying a carpet, a woman carrying an infant and two other small children plus her weekly groceries, on and on. Because I refused to take the Egged tour buses, you know, all those Israeli buses that would take you from, let's say, Jerusalem to a settlement. So I traveled with the collective taxis that were inevitably stopped every so many kilometers by a destroyed home that had been bulldozed and you'd have to walk through or walk around the ruins for anywhere from a couple minutes to 10 minutes and go through this long process. And that is when, going through one of those one day, I thought, well, I've been so lied to by my government, by the media in my country. As a North American, we are not told anything near the truth about what happens in Israel. Now, that was 2003. Don't say we didn't warn you. You did. You totally warned me, and I totally was not prepared. Chaim, when I met you, I'd already been threatened by terrorists in the Andes, people with whom I actually politically sided, the Sendero and Tupac Amaru. I had taught all over South America. I had hitchhiked to include in a Peruvian army tank and all sorts of farmers, collective hitchhiking. I had seen a lot. I had not seen that. I, I totally got it when I would see the comparisons made by Israelis like yourself and others, including Palestinians and people who've lived in the West Bank and Gaza, who would make the comparisons to apartheid South Africa and more. And I'm wondering if you might take our listeners through, let's begin with how you came into this world because you were not born in Israel, Chaim. Can you tell us about your beginnings as a soon-to-be Israeli citizen? Well, uh, I was born actually in a refugee camp uh, because both of my parents uh, were survivors of Auschwitz. Um, they spent their um, few months uh, between June of 1944 and um, the um, evacuation of Auschwitz by the Germans. Um, and both ended up in um, you know what are called fuss marshes but uh, they are death marshes marches um my mother to bergen-belsen and, and my father to um, a place called gussen too which um was a subcamp of matthausen and was called by the nazis the hell of hells and um he used to say to me and i didn't understand it that auschwitz was a holiday camp in comparison to gussen uh, so they um, both were freed, my mother by the British and my father by the Americans um, in, um, uh, in April and May of 1945. And they ended up uh, in Italy and met in Torino. Um, I'm, I, I just completed a, a novel based on, on that period. Uh, so I hope uh, it can be read soon. And it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a novel, it's not a, a diary, but it includes quite a lot of this stuff. Um, so uh, they ended up in Torino, they married there and moved to Rome um, to um, um, basically uh, to begin with uh, at uh, Cinecittà and then um, at, um, at a refugee camp in the mountains about Rome, and that's where I was born. 
So I was born in a refugee camp, and that probably makes me um, quite capable uh, of understanding the Palestinians. And it's quite a coincidence also, you're having been born in Shinachita and your work as a scholar and your work as a filmmaker today. Sure. Um, I don't think that um, it's kind of, um, I don't, I didn't get it for many years uh, that it was Shinachita, but uh, my mother used to tell me that when I grew up and uh, she said, um, uh, you know, we were staying in film studios for a few weeks until they found a place for us. And I didn't know what she meant. And then uh, I read about it and, and connected the dots. And, we, you know, I came to Israel in the middle of the war uh, in 1948 as a baby. Um, we were put into another um, prison uh, camp um, because that's what they did with people. We were not prisoners, but... Um, uh, we had to stay there until a place was found for us. And my father was drafted into the army, refused to fight. Um, he was um, one of the first um, refuseniks in Israel, if not the first, uh, and um, found himself in jail for refusing to fight. And in the end, he um, ended up as a medic um, on the condition of not carrying arms. And um, that's how he survived the war. Um, and then we ended up living in an Arab house in Jaffa. So, um, you know, the life of refugees um, are w where I come from and um, where I ended up as a child. This informed clearly your political perspectives as to what has gone on since 1948 in Israel. Can you explain a bit your awakening to this? Obviously, your father being an early refusenik, how did he frame this to you and your family? Um, you know, um, my mother collected all the stuff that was found in the flat that we were placed in, um, assuming that the owners would soon come back and she wanted it to be in good nick and nothing broken, nothing missing. So when they come, she can hand it over to them. And that's how my parents spoke to us. They said, this is not our home. Um, you know, um, I was um, then I was um, alone, but uh, my, my sister was born in, in, in 1950. Um, and uh, even when she was quite small, um, my parents used to say, this is not our home. We will have another home sometime. Um, and the people who live, used to live here, the Arab family that uh, owns this place will come back one day when there is peace and we will move to another place. Um, I, I was very frightened by this. Um, and um, I won't tell you the whole story because this is not what we're talking about. But the family actually did return for a short visit in 1956. And um, they they sat with us and, and spoke. And um, it, it was one, one of the events that uh, probably the most influential events in my life. Um, the meeting with that family of refugees from Gaza that um, 
you know, we lived in their home um, for about eight years. Obviously, the political situation in Israel is told quite differently if you were to watch your entire life as I did, let's say North American ABC, NBC television, as opposed to what you were being represented within Israeli media. Was there a lot of media rhetoric to get through or were there more avenues of getting more accurate information at the time? There was no accurate information of any kind at the time. Um, this was a very different period, of course. It was a period of um, a lot of Israel was a co collectivized society. It was never a socialist society, of course. Uh, no socialist society is built on apartheid, but um, it was uh, collectivized and um, the, it had a collective mind and everyone had to, um, you know, burr down and, and, and carry the, the weight um, that this has brought. Um, and um, most of the media personnel um, where um, all the media personnel were from the elite and they knew what they needed to do. Uh, Ben-Gurion said uh, in 1950 for the first time, um, we have a state, we have an army, uh, but we have no people. Uh, there's no nation uh, and we have to create the nation. Uh, so um, this is what uh, I'm speaking about it in the book quite a lot. Basically, um, you have to create a nation out of uh, a collection um, of uh, unconnected individuals and um, the machinery that Ben-Gurion has uh, selected um, to uh, build this nation was the army because the army was the, the single largest institution in Israel. So uh, I don't think that as a child I have experienced uh, the truth breaking out through uh, different reports and you know my novel deals with that quite a lot um, how difficult it was to work out um, and it was impossible actually for most people unless you read English French or other languages and had access to a radio um, and listen to other stations um, or even you know read papers that were imported um, uh, very late after they appeared. Uh, most people could not possibly imagine that Israel is um, the occupying force, that it is the, um, um, you know, the, the uh, colonial power um, in the Middle East rather than some kind of victim uh, of Arab aggression. Um, we were uh, growing up um, as victims, we were told we are victims of um, of the world. First of all, of course, of course, of anti-Semitism uh, and uh, and of the Holocaust. And then, um, because I knew that that was true, you know, my parents were victims of the Holocaust. Then um, people accepted that we are now victims of the big Arab nation all around us, uh, hundreds of millions of people, and we're just like one million people in the midst of all that. Um, there were no, um, you know, there were no uh, refusenik um, journalists uh, at the time. Uh, and even when Uri Avneri started um, acting a bit more um, professionally, um, he never stopped being um, 
a Jewish uh, nationalist. Of course, he came from a right-wing movement um, uh, of terrorists, um, you know, the, the Stern Group. And um, uh, he, he always was, and he was the only voice um, against the government, and he always was uh, a bit of a nationalist um, and wouldn't, he would talk about uh, in personalities that he disliked and, and their their um, you know um, behavior that was dictatorial, like Ben Gurion was definitely behaving like a dictator. Uh, so he criticized him and he criticized his party, um, but he always stopped at that invisible line of "we are a nation" and um, as a nation we have got to stick together. So um, I am afraid that what you heard in uh, North America is what we heard, um, you know, a version of that we heard, which was even more intensely nationalistic, um, settler colonial, um, and uh, blind to um, all the uh, enormous damage, um, death and destruction that Israel has um, instituted upon the Palestinians and other Arab nations. Well, let's touch upon the quote-unquote victim narrative in terms of it's something that's of great use to people politically today. I see it in many cases in other areas of cultural politics, several cultural wars in vigor at the moment within the West, especially the gender wars. And I find it fascinating how claiming victimhood becomes this way of silencing your opponent and you somehow automatically win the argument. You don't have to have a debate. You can no platform the other because the very idea of asking me a question means you must want me dead. I'm giving you an example from the gender debate. But what's interesting is that many of our listeners may or may not know about proposals that were given to create Israel in other parts of the world, such as in Australia, in North America. Now, there are people on the left who believe that this was a politically strategic choice. Hence the problems we are living today as a world populace, especially those in the Middle East, especially Palestinians and Palestinians in diaspora. What do you think about how the creation of Israel is linked to Israel's current and long-standing maintenance of the strongest army in the Middle East? Well, um, there was no need to create Israel in order to resolve the refugee problems at the end of um, the World War. Um, America took very few refugees. Um, Britain took even less. Um, so uh, if um, it was necessary to resolve this problem, um, they could have uh, easily been um, divided between uh, those nations and others, um, mainly in North and South America and some in Europe, um, without uh, the need to uh, dispossess a whole nation of its home and the destruction that was connected to the Nakba. Um, but uh, of course, um, those people uh, who ruled Britain, uh, who ruled the United States, Canada, Australia, etc. Uh, we're not exactly open to um, Jews coming in. Um, in 1938, there was the first uh, refugee uh, convention because of the problems of refugees. Many of them were Jews, of course, uh, who ran away from Austria and Germany and even Poland because it, it was a fascist country. 
Uh, and so there were half a million refugees in Europe and um, the world knew that it had to be resolved and a convention was called in Evian in, in France. And um, the famous words, um, you know, each country had to say, we will take X refugees and we will take Y refugees. Um, and um, it was alphabetical and Australia came first. And um, when the uh, prime minister of Australia spoke, he said, Australia cannot take any refugees, not one. This was the quote that everyone knew, and that's how it started. And after that, it became even worse. So when it came to um, the United States and the UK, they didn't have to say not one, but they said they won't take refugees. Um, and um, that meant that after the war, um, that was taken as a baseline. Um, they will not um, come to our country. And uh, those two countries took very few refugees. However, they had um, important interests in the Middle East. Britain was ruling Palestine as the um, basis of its power in um, the Middle East. And um, it enabled Zionism in its 30 years um, to make sure that it continues to control the Middle East through its power bases in Cairo and in Jerusalem and in Baghdad. This was um, its basis for action in the Middle East. Uh, France had a similar um, northern um, flank of the Middle East, um, Syria and Lebanon, etc. So there were interests for continuing the Jewish um, occupation of Palestine and its um, uh, you know, installation as a state rather than just a community without powers. And um, in the end, the Americans also supported that for their own reasons. And we can see that um, support continued until today. Um, Israel is, of course, the um, country getting more financial support than any country in the world since um, 1948. Um, and actually, it gets more support than the rest of the world put together, this uh, small stretch of land in Palestine. Um, and it is, without that support, uh, one of the richest countries per capita in the world. Uh, so you have to ask yourself, what was behind that? And what was behind the creation of Israel was a control of the Middle East. And you could not control it through Arabs um, in government because uh, the Arabs um, were already um, up to uh, the tricks of the British and the Americans and um, refused to play their games in different countries and uh, were fighting that control um, quite effectively. Um, you know, at the same time, um, Britain was ejected out of the basis along the canal um, and and that's why the 1956 war happened so th there's um israel was a flank of world um imperialist forces and stayed that and it's an agent of those forces a very effective agent one has to say always uh, to be trusted to do what it needs to do though sometimes it acts a bit um independently in its own interests more than in the interests of its masters. So this is not a, quite a dog um, wagged by its tail. 
but uh, it's it's the tale is is quite powerful. Um, so um, you know, instead of actually taking those Jews to countries that said that they wanted their um, best interest, this is what they had at heart: the best interest of the Jews who survived the Holocaust. They sent them to Palestine to. Um, fight the Palestinians and, and get them out of their homes. Um, it, it was a terrible um, global politics game, which still continues. Uh, so Britain has denied, uh, I'm living in Britain, as you know, uh, and I never tire to remind the British uh, audiences that I speak to that it is the British that has caused um, the problems in Palestine. Uh, and it, it, they used um, the um, Zionists to actually carry out uh, plans that both of them have agreed upon. So um, this is a, a long story. It hasn't started in 1948. It hasn't started in 1956 or in 67. It started in the 19th century when Britain was looking of for ways of controlling um, the rest of the Middle East when it was only in Egypt at the time. Uh, and this is the result. And um, we are still playing this terrible game to this very day. Britain is still supporting Zionism with um, unqualified candor. Um, and um, doesn't matter what Israel will do, it knows that it will be supported by the, U the US. So um, this is what um, we are facing, I think, I'm afraid. It was very strange for me to witness guards everywhere, military everywhere with very large weapons that you wouldn't even see unless you were at war. And I saw a scene once where a guard was very quick to turn his weapon towards the child because the child was playing in a way that he felt was threatening, it was silliness, it was playing. Every night, one of the entries to the old city, there's a string of very elderly women selling grape leaves, and it has to shut down by 1800 hours. They were late in shutting down by a couple minutes, and the guards came and kicked over the cardboard boxes upon which they displayed their grape leaves. I witnessed this. Even if someone had overstayed their welcome, according to these guards, these were elderly women in their 70s and 80s. I couldn't believe what I witnessed. I tried to document as much of this as possible, but my everyday existence in Jerusalem, traveling throughout the West Bank, was speckled with incidents like this. I made the Mahsam video after my second or third trip in the West Bank, because when I saw how long it took to get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, as an Israeli, as a person taking an Egged bus, that time became four hours if you were taking the local Palestinian collective taxis. So I decided to document it so that people could understand, especially in the United States, how much we have been lied to, because it's not like taking the F train, changing to the Q train, and then you arrive a block away from your work. It's much more like you get out, you have to walk even up to a kilometer. The IDF is full of young kids who have weapons and they freely point it in your direction. I had many of these weapons pointed at me. 
once near Jericho at a very high mountain ridge, or going to Jericho, I should say, the soldier had his weapon at me just for getting out and saying, how long more are we going to have to wait? We had already been waiting two hours with no movement. And it was very clear they were making everyone wait to annoy them. They tried to raise the patience of people. So your work in your last book, An Army Like No Other, How the IDF Made a Nation, looks at this relationship. Why is Israel maintaining such an army in the Middle East? It's soldiered by largely very young people. Young people, men and women, unlike many countries where women are excluded, but of course that becomes a, a badge to wear where you are contributing to your national heritage. How did it come to be that the army in this particular country could become something that more resembles what it was fighting ostensibly against, referring back to Germany of the 1930s and 40s? Well, um, an army is basically a large, powerful, lethal machinery of death and destruction um, used to control land and people. Um, if um, the army is the army of the people, um, Ben Gurion, and I, I, I spend a lot of this in the book, um, Ben Gurion used the army to create a nation because it was the only machinery that could do it uh, in his book. And um, once it's a nation created by the army rather than the opposite, um, an army set up by a nation, then of course the value system of the army is the value system of the nation. Um, now, um, Israel has created an army called the Israel Defense Forces, uh, but as Diane said, uh, it never was a defensive army and it was always used offensive in its planning and in its actions. Um, it was an army of aggression rather than an army of defense. So that's the first typification, which I think is important to remember. The second thing is, uh, as an old Marxist, um, I know and believe that people are not what they think they want to be, but they are what they do. In other words, if you do apartheid, you're a racist. If you are a soldier um, who is um, for 11 months on, um, on leave, and then when months you do reserves, um, you're a soldier for the whole year, not just for that month. And you said that the army is made of young people. These are the, you know, the, the, court, the colonel, but most of the Israeli army is reserve. Um, so um, the reservists are basically everyone in the country, men and women. They are the intellectuals. They are the people who sell in the market. They are the bus drivers. They are the politicians and they are the artists and the media personnel. Um, there isn't a kind of professional army, and you know, professional army is normally recruited from uh, the lower, lower and poorer echelons of society. Um, no, in Israel, um, there are many elite units. What are elite units? They are um, the units where the um, best, um, uh, you know, the elite of the society 
um, is um, actually serving. Now, those elite units are basically um, death squads. That's what they are. That's what we call them in other regimes. Um, they kill without any compunction, without any law that directs um, their activities or limits them, and with total impunity. And this is what the elite of the army, which is the elite of the nation, is doing. So if what you do is settler colonialism, apartheid, racism, um, killing and mutilating um, children, women, old men, or young men, you know, <laughs> young men are not worse than, you know, um, old men or children, you know, they have a right to live, um, they are not army. So uh, basically, if this is what you do um, every day for three years uh, when you're a soldier, and then you do it until you're 60 as a reservist, that's what you are. That's what you have become. Um, you might think that you're a professor or an artist, or, but basically you are a settler colonialist armed uh, to the teeth. And uh, basically, let us remember that this army is not just, uh, you know, you don't need such a powerful army against the Palestinians. Y your question is correct. Um, why? Um, is Israel holding on to this huge army, um, very powerful, you know, what number five or six in the world, every count um, finds that. Um, well, uh, Israel is running a laboratory um, of um, armed, uh, against armed resistance. Yeah, this, this is a huge laboratory. It's the whole Middle East is that laboratory. It has uh, special regions for special purposes um, where you try out the weapons. One of them is Gaza, uh, the biggest open um, prison in, in the world. Uh, it's, it's, it's a large concentration camp. Um, and, you know, sometimes they move in, but most of the time they control it from the outside. Um, so they try everything from uh, drones to bombs to helicopters to surveillance to um, cameras. Uh, everything is tried on the Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza. And of course, on the Lebanese, on the Syrians, um, and occasionally on other nations in the Arab East and West. Um, so basically, this is the biggest business of Israel. The biggest business of Israel is based on the IDF. It is the military-industrial complex. Um, Israel is not just dealing with getting into your telephone through the NSO, which we read about quite a lot, um, because it affects all of us and because um, Personally, uh, if you read my book, you know that they have affected um, the process of publishing this book. Uh, so um, this is what we all know and talk about nowadays, NSO and surveillance capitalism, and um, a lot is written about that. But basically, Israel is selling everything from the hardware, the software of um, death and destruction to every um right-wing regime or you know any other regime um which uh, would buy from it um 
last count, 135 countries um, that we know about and probably another 20 or 30 that we don't know about. And they're selling training to um, personnel of police forces and armed forces all over the world, uh, both in Israel itself, but also in situ in the States, in Canada, in Australia, in Britain, in France, uh, you name it, they do it. Um, Israel is number five or number six arms dealer in the world. Now, this is a very small country, you know, tiny. Um, or I should say state, because Israel is not a country, but a state. The country is called Palestine and will remain so. But um, for such a small state to sell, um, to, to export death and destruction in every form um, depends on um, the continuous trying out testing in this big lab, open air lab, called the Middle East. So they can say, as they do always, tested in action. Tested in action means we killed Palestinians with this, or we photographed them with this, or we bombed them with this. This is what um, it, it really should read as. And um, actually, when you think about it, Israel has not been that successful with all that, but that is not also something that people understand in the West. They don't understand that um, Israel has been quite unsuccessful, for example, in 2006, uh, which I deal with in the book um, um, quite substantially, how Israel totally failed in its war against Hezbollah in, uh, in Lebanon, uh, 120,000 Israeli soldiers with thousands of tanks um, fighting a few thousand guerrillas um, um, and uh, very committed guerrillas, one has to say, and very inventive. And they lost against them. They had to run away and get the US to get them out uh, in one piece um, before more people died, both uh, civilians and soldiers. So Israel is not that successful in um, those um, military adventures, but it is successful in one thing, and that is the most important one. It is successful in holding on to Palestine through an apartheid system, uh, through militarized apartheid system. And apartheid in South Africa was also militarized. Uh, and uh, one of the things I wanted to say that you talked about the women um, selling the grape leaves at the um, gate of the old city and you asked um, why do they do this and um, they do it because they can they do it because we don't do anything um, outside they do it because boris johnson and biden and 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 macron and everyone else uh, who rules the country um, democratically or otherwise is supporting uh, this uh, atrocious um, uh, regime, you know? Um, that's why they do it, because they can, and because all their life, they were used to be the masters uh, in an unequal society, in an unequal occupation, and they have become what they have done. 
you know, what they were doing. Um, they have become um, not the professors and the artists that they think they are, but they are basically colonial settlers, armed colonial settlers, um, and they display the brutality and the uh, indifference and the denial uh, that is typical of uh, of such colonial efforts elsewhere, like in, in Algeria or in other places, yeah. Um, colonial settlers are not nice people. Uh, the United States and Canada were built by colonial settlers that have basically decimated um, the population, not decimated, exterminated, I should say, because of course, decimated is the Roman for destroying every 10th person. And they destroyed every person um, practically in North America. I, we don't know how many tens of millions, but they've destroyed the population. So it, it's not for nothing that Israel and Americans uh, and Canadians are so um, uh, in cahoot because um, those value systems that emerge from settler colonialism are what um, Israelis have perfected in the 20th century when other colonial efforts were on the demise. There are many people who might say, isn't this a bit of hyperbole? I've had people ask me that when I was doing my research, it was on the first female suicide bombers of the second Intifada. And people would say, well, why are you asking questions about suicide bombers? Why aren't you asking questions as one Israeli man I interviewed said to me, why aren't you asking about us? He accused me of having Stockholm syndrome. He said, you're in love with your oppressor. And I said, shouldn't we be asking questions about these bombings that affect obviously Israelis, especially those living in Jerusalem? Are you not at all interested in finding out why people are so desperate that they're willing to kill themselves as well as others? And his theory was Stockholm Syndrome. Of course, this particular man worked within the rescue teams that would come to clean up the dead. He was discussing one of the most recent bus attacks, detailing the pieces of bodies that he and his team had to clean up. What is the mechanism that allows Israelis in so many numbers to live daily with the knowledge that they're supporting a system that is quite repressive? When I saw my first map that was handed to me by Batsalem with all the checkpoints, all the settlers' colonies and so forth, it's very clear why you can't travel very far in the West Bank without being stopped. There are now settlements everywhere. There are a lot of questions that are left completely unanswered to the foreign press, but are Israelis really so uninformed? Or is this just an excellent exercise of propaganda within, let's say, the school and media sectors? Well, I think it's, um, of course, starts at preschool and continues through the school system. And um, Professor um, Nurit uh, Peledelhanan has written an excellent book about the othering of the Palestinians uh, by the Israeli school system and the uh, build buildup of hatred towards the other in, in Israel. Uh, and it goes on in the army. And of course, in um, the school system itself, you train for the army, you, you do arms training, you do different types of training. So when you actually come at 18 into the army, um, as a man or a woman, 
um, you are trained. Um, a lot of time was saved so you can actually start acting almost immediately as an oppressor in that service. Um, but um, the, uh, this is not just a system of propaganda. Uh, as you said, your example has proven that um, this uh, man that uh, spoke to you about the uh, Stockholm Syndrome believed uh, in this um, because um, of a very complex system that is not just um, the army and education, but for example, uh, the place of religion, the place of the Bible, um, in uh, Zionist uh, preparation of the colony um, before 1948. Um, Zionists were mainly um, non-religious people or even anti-religious people like Ben-Gurion, uh, but um, they would use anything um, to gain what they needed and they used religion and they mainly used the Bible. Now the Bible is uh, as we should know, but most people don't because they don't read the Bible. The Bible is the most sold book in the world and the least read book in the world, I should think. Um, so um, if you read the book of Joshua, um, which is 26 chapters of blood and destruction of all the seven peoples of Palestine, there are more than seven actually, <laughs> if there are 11 uh, instances of um, um, you know, total genocide um, in Palestine by carried out by Joshua and the Israelites. Now, fortunately, we are wiser than just believing to uh, words in the Bible, which is an ideological text, a deeply ideological text, um, and um, written about 1200 to 1500 years after the um, purported um, events have happened. So this is not kind of journalism or even literature written at the time. This is um, ideological uh, literature written um, a, a millennium uh, later. Uh, but what is um, the meaning of the book of Joshua? The book of Joshua is uh, um, a justification of racism, of apartheid, uh, against the non-Jew. Now that is a very, very terrifying thing to realize. And, uh, but you know, I haven't realized that until I left Israel. Uh, we studied uh, the book of Joshua, like all the books, or most of the books of the Bible in Hebrew. And uh, in the description, in those 11 instances of uh, genocide in the book of Joshua, not only are all the fighters uh, killed, executed, um, but uh, also the men, women, children, old people, dogs, cats, horses, and 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 donkeys. Um, so uh, and the dogs, you know. In other words, everything that moves, everything that lives, has to be killed in those towns that are taken uh, by Joshua and the Israelites. Now, this is the model that the Zionists have chosen um, when they started building their army and when they started building the um, population center in Israel. Uh, so you um, are talking about a mindset 
which is even worse than that of the North American, uh, Euro the Europeans coming to North America, I mean, and um, destroying um, the um, native population sometimes as a result of not understanding what they find. After all, it wasn't, um, it was the 15th century. They didn't quite know wh where they're coming and, and what the conditions are. Um, this is not true about Zionism. Uh, Zionism is a late colonial enterprise. It learned from all um, earlier colonial ent enterprises. And as opposed to many colonial enterprises, it is a settler colonial enterprise, like that in uh, the United States, Canada or Australia, uh, where uh, the population had to be exterminated or uh, got out. Um, most of it was exterminated. Uh, so um, basically, if you build your understanding of your historical role on the book of Joshua and on the Bible, uh, you don't end up being, um, you know, a faint heart liberal. Uh, that's what happened to Israeli society. So the guy that turns um, the, the old woman's um, tray at the gate is um, quite clear that what he has to do is get rid of as many Arab um, Palestinians as possible. Uh, now it's possible to only kick the tray or kick the face of the woman or shoot the child. Um, and a lot of them still are left. So it's, um, if you want, it's done in stages. This is how Israelis are treating um, Palestinians. Palestinians have no place in Palestine, a place they came from and, uh, and that is called after them and has 4,000 years of history of Palestine and Palestinians um, in, uh, in Professor Noor Masalcha's uh, recent book about the history of Palestine. Um, no, um, they are negating the history. They are ahistorical. Um, they are also negating Jewish history, Jewish history in Europe, Jewish history in uh, the Americas, in other places, and of course in the Arab world. So this history is denied. History of Jews living in peace with Muslims and Christians in Palestine for 2000 years until um, the, the Zionists uh, appear, uh, with the only exception, of course, being the Crusades. Uh, but the, the Jews, is Muslims and Christians in Palestine experience no uh, racism of the kind that um, Jews experience in Europe, nothing even reminding us of that and um, not uh, talking about pogroms or um, anything like that. Uh, so Jews living in the Arab world on the whole lived as uh, citizens. They might not have been equals, but there was nothing uh, of the hatred that they suffered uh, in, um, in, in Europe and the destruction in the end. So um, all this is denied in the interest of control, in the interest of clearing Palestine of its population. So um, when you only kick an old woman because you can't kick them or kick her all the way out, this is part of the process. It's it's um, it's a debilitating process uh, intellectually because um, you become 
a stranger to human emotions, you become a stranger to your own behavior, um, you know, grown up men grabbing little children and beating them, in some cases to death. Um, hundreds of children were shot uh, and killed in the first intifada by fathers of children as well. Um, so um, these were called young men, um, the children of 12 or 14 in Hebrew press are called young Palestinian men, while um, the people killing them are called our boys. So th these are systems of building um, um, a relationship to the other, which is murderous, which is um, enabling um, those atrocities to continue. Of course, normally uh, people will not leave their university job, uh, you know, someone like, like me, um, leaving the university job, going to the West Bank or to Gaza and shooting at children. But that's what Israelis have to do. They have to um, every year leave their job and do that. And um, they are getting uh, it normalized into their system or they, are, they get normalized into the machinery that needs to do it. Um, and um, Dayan was very, very clear about that. Um, he said once in 1956, um, we are a generation that settles the land and without the steel helmet and the cannons more, we will not be able to plant a tree and build a home. Let us not be deterred from seeing uh, the loading that is inflaming and filling the lives of hundreds of thousands of Arabs who live around us. Let us not avert our eyes, lest our arms weaken. This is the fate of our generation. This is our life choice to be prepared and armed, strong and determined, lest the sword be stricken from our fist and our lives cut down. This is very important. Uh, it's a matter of choice. Uh, Israel could have had just peace with the Palestinians a million times. It chose not to do it because it chose to control them by force, to deny them rights, to treat them racist in a ra with racist abuse, to um, make sure they have no human rights, political rights, property rights, education rights, health rights. Any rights are denied to people under occupation. Uh, this is what they have chosen because they can, they are strong. And when a whole nation chooses this, and when no one is allowed to stand up and say, this is apartheid, this is racist, this is colonialism. Um, and, you know, after a while, um, the regime manages to silence everyone. We've seen this in um, different regimes. Of course, the most extreme was in um, under Hitler. But we've seen it in the Soviet Union, we've seen it in uh, America uh, during the late 40s and early 50s. Um, this is not unique to Israel, uh, this machinery of 
subduing the population into fulfilling an unjust and illegal political aim. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. For those who were born post-1967, for instance, the stories about nationhood have shifted, including the way media in Canada or the U.S. represent your country. And I find it interesting that in recent years, especially since the Obama presidency, the media seems, and I'm putting this in quote marks, seems to be more pro, and this is where the quotes go, pro-Palestinian in the major media in the States, but it's not quite like that now, is it? And also the way in which we're seeing accusations of anti-Semitism being rolled out in the Labour Party. I find this all very strange. On the one hand, I was no ultimate fan of Corbyn for other reasons, but when the accusations of anti-Semitism were charged of him, and I read what was the charge itself, I couldn't square that with reality. What is going on where international actors are supporting the state, and at the same time, what are war crimes, what is apartheid, are not being called out, then within UK's Labour Party, we're seeing this very strange kangaroo court of anti-Semitism. Ken Loach more recently. Well, um, Ken Loach um, was suspended from the Labour Party in August, and I rendered my resignation from the Labour Party uh, the day after uh, in an open letter to um, the, the leader to the Labour, of the Labour Party. Um, two years before that, I have um, reported myself as anti-Semitic according to the regulations <laughs> of the Labour Party, again in an open letter saying that as I have always supported Palestine and continue to criticize Israel and will continue to act in the ways which are prescribed um, by the Labour Party, um, I'm anti-Semitic according to those regulations, and I demand that an um, investigation is started against me. This is uh, you. You normally do do this in a letter to the investigation unit, which is what I've done. Um, you write the name of the accused. You write your name and you give the information. And I gave the information, my books, my articles, my films. Uh, these are um, obviously ample proof for my um, anti-Semitic uh, behavior. And I ended up by saying that as a son of two survivors of Auschwitz, whose whole family, apart from them, was killed by Nazis, um, uh, I, I find the behavior of the Labour Party anti-Semitic in itself, uh, because um, about um, 10 times uh, more Jews are accused of anti-Semitism than non-Jews by the Labour Party. The, I will say this again. Uh, the uh, percentage of Jews in the population of Britain is less than um, half a percent, uh, sorry, 1%, less than 1%. Uh, 
um, then um, it's it's less than a half a percent actually. But never mind. Um, the um, people who are accused uh, of anti-Semitism until now, the percentage is about forty percent. Okay. Now, of course, not uh, all people are members of the Labour Party. Um, so um, most Jews are not either members or even voters of the Labour Party. They vote conservative in the main. Uh, so um, more than 10 times more Jews are accused of anti-Semitism um, than non-Jews. So this is obviously an anti-Semitic behavior against Jews like me who are suspected of being anti-Semites because we support the rights of the Palestinians. Now, this is such a travesty, uh, not just of justice, but of logic, um, that you are right to ask about it. So how does this behave? Um, uh, how does this appear, this behavior? How, how, did this, has, how does this develop? Now, basically, the Israeli Hasbara, the most... Um, developed um, and and very well um, financed system uh, it's a global system uh, of Israeli propaganda has chosen the Holocaust as the model of um, identity for for Jews and it claims to be a state of all Jews um, of course most Jews had nothing to do with Israel and didn't vote for it to become the state and wouldn't if they were asked um, but um, that's the line that Israel has taken now if you are criticizing the state of all Jews then you must be anti-semitic this is the IHRA definition um, fruit um, the, the IHRA definition um, through its um, examples uh, is basically putting the onus um, of anti-Semitism on people who criticize Israel. So at one time, in the time of my parents, and even now, um, anti-Semitism used to be, and actually remains, true anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews. Now, as someone said, anti-Semitism, uh, the anti-Semitic people are those who the Jews hate. This is this is the change. Um, so um, basically, if Jews don't like you, you're anti-Semitic, even if you're Jewish, because they say so. Uh, and this is have become the um, yardstick to to judge uh, many thousands of Jews like me in Britain, who um, were kicked out of the Labour Party. I asked to be um, accused and waited for two years. And um, when I realized they're never going to do it, I left the party um, so um, disgusted after they um, um, expelled uh, Ken Loach. And, and lo and behold, two months later, I get a letter accusing me of anti-Semitism, seven <laughs> pages of it. Uh, and uh, they asked me to defend myself as a, a member of the Labour Party when I have resigned from that party two months earlier after having lost the hope to be accused of anti-Semitism because <laughs> it took them two years. This is the mad system we are now facing in Britain and have to deal with. Um, Was the latest accusation the one that you had written and they took a long time to get to or was it from a third party? I don't know, of course, because they don't tell you. 
um, the, the name of the accuser is kept secret. Uh, it's a system of grassing, of course. Uh, so I don't know if, um, but, uh, you know, basically, of course, they didn't took, they didn't take my books and articles as examples. They took things that I've shared on Facebook and so on. Um, yes, most yes, of yes, them, yes. not ones that I've written, but um, ones that I've shared, you know, that technology of, of, of blaming people uh, through sharing. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, seven pages of um, things, terrible things like sharing um, you know, Palestinian websites and so on, uh, that I have done uh, to qualify as an anti-Semite. This is a sick um, turn of events. Um, and of course, Boris Johnson, who is a Zionist, uh, is now joined by a leader of the Labour Party who himself um, said that he is an unconstructed and unapologetic Zionist. Um, and um, uh, the liberals uh, have joined in that. They all accepted the IHRA. Even the Green Party, the only progressive party um, we have in the, this state, um, has accepted the IHRA definition. So um, we are uh, living in very strange times. You're right. But why is this done? Of course, you can't accuse a victim. Um, and if the Israelis are victims uh, because they are Jews and because Jews are um, everywhere criticized uh, because the state is criticized. And if you criticize the state, which um, um, creates uh, new war crimes weekly, um, then you, you are anti-Semitic, then you've created a great system. You can't accuse Israel because it's Jewish. And so it says and it's a state of all the Jews. And therefore, if it does something, uh, it does it in defense because everyone else around it is anti-Semitic, including many Jews, of course. It's, it, this is a world, um, it's a fictional world, uh, but as we all know, fiction is very powerful uh, in politics. Uh, most politics is fiction. How is it that the policies that lead to the empowerment of the IDF, the, the financial support for the IDF, Israeli identity as affected by the IDF are created by this cousin, the United States, which, as you know, has a huge lobby. One of the things, for instance, Chaim, that made me laugh and, and cry at the same time was when I was given another book by uh, one of the many organizations I worked with in Israel, that it was about how right-wing Christian groups were giving money to support the state of Israel, because in their minds, when Jesus comes down to earth, that the Christians would get the first seat in, in Israel, not the Jews. I mean, because their anti-Semitism ran so deeply that they made pacts with the Jews of Israel, the right-wing Jews of Israel, to create money to protect Al-Aqsa for their future, believing that God would see them as the worthy Christians and not the Jews with whom they made these pacts for financial support. It blew my mind, the twisted nature of the financial support. Well, um, you will not be surprised when I say that every racist um, 
on this earth seem to be behind Israel. Um, I'm talking about Bolsonaro, I'm talking about uh, Modi, I'm talking about uh, Orban, I'm talking about Poland, Austria, Czechos uh, Slovakia, um, I'm of course talking about Trump, I'm talking about Boris Johnson. Uh, so basically every racist leader is a supporter of Israel and actually every anti-Semitic leader is the best friend of Israel. Now this on the face of it sounds like madness when of course it is, um, but this is making a lot of sense in the fictional um, fictional world that Israel is created around itself in order to protect itself and, and stay uh, immune to, to prosecution and to, to justice, um, to international law. Uh, international law has no teeth anyway. And um, as you well know, um, the ICC is not taking any action against Western nations or powerful nations. And even its investigation into Israel is uh, suffering um, quite badly um, from um, threats uh, from outside. And I think uh, it might come to nothing because of that. However, um, it's, it's okay to blame all kind of uh, African um, dictators, um, which they have done, uh, and uh, people from ex-Yugoslavia, which they have done. But these were the only people the ICC dealt with since its inception in, in 2014. Let's see what it does with Israel. But Israel is um, best friends with every racist and anti-Semitic leader in the world for good reason. Um, if anti-Semitism is um, hatred towards Israel, these people don't suffer from it. They are clients of Israel. They buy a lot of um, arms and other stuff from Israel, like training and NSO services and so on. Um, and so they depend, their repression and, and, and their control depend on Israel. And um, unfortunately, too many states depend on Israel. Um, they don't depend on Israel in the same way that Israel depends on the United States, of course, but they depend on Israel's goodwill. Therefore, less and less of them are likely to, uh, in the UN, take a position critical of Israel. Um, so this has uh, been happening quite a lot. Now, in the case of United States that you mentioned, let's take the last three presidents. Obama, as far as um, people in my position are concerned, was an unmitigated disaster. He came in with the Cairo Declaration in 2009 and went all the way down um, after he got the Nobel Prize for things he hasn't done and for acts he hasn't taken and for position he has forsaken. Um, so first he got the prize and then he didn't do the thing that the prize was supposedly for, um, like, um, you know, before the event. Um, and all that he was saying he will do um, for the Palestinians um, never happened. 
Um, and after that, uh, it was easy for Trump to to trump him uh, to actually um, go uh, one further, move the um, you know this little thing of moving the embassy to uh, East Jerusalem uh, is not uh, nonsensical. It is uh, symbolic. Is saying um, you Arabs and Palestinians go hang. I don't care um, about history. I don't care about law. I don't care about justice. I do it because I have um, the power and I, I, I'm going to do it because uh, Netanyahu asks me and I'm a nice guy, so I'll do it. Uh, and then Biden comes and actually continues the line of uh, his ex-boss and his ex-enemy. Um, and he does uh, more or less the same things. For example, instead of helping people who are bombed in Gaza and Jordan, uh, in, in um, the West Bank uh, or in, uh, in, in, in Lebanon, he gives Israel a huge uh, injection of cash to defend itself from who? From the people that it is bombing. So instead of, you know, um, the every for every Isra Israeli that is dead in those bombings from uh, Gaza, there are between two and four hundred Palestinians dead. So who are you defending? Who is attacking and who is uh, defending themselves? Who is here the strong party that is actually initiating the murder? And uh, who is the weak party that has no way of defending itself? So instead of fighting to defend the Palestinians, not just with, you know, missiles, but actually with political action, um, Biden acts to defend the victim. The victim is Israel. Israel is always the victim because it's a Jewish state and because they've educated the rest of the world very effectively that you can't attack us because we are the victim and because we're Jews. And on the one hand, they rejected 2000 years of um, Jewish history, of Jewish culture, of Jewish literature, of Jewish invention, um, etc. Um, the, the golden age in Spain uh, was a golden age of Jews and Muslims mainly. The Christians were, of course, not part of it uh, during that period. And uh, you cannot think of the Renaissance without that collaboration of Jewish and Muslim academics, um, artists, uh, um, authors, philosophers, poets, astronomers, you name it. Um, so all this is rejected by Zionist um, ideology and by Zionist practice. Um, but what is taken from this 2000 years of what they call exile is um, the victimhood status. This is a very powerful, useful um, commodity that Israel is holding to. Uh, it, and that commodity enables it to do all the crimes that it does with support from Britain and um, the United States, Canada and other um, countries, and of course the EU. So. Um, if you think this is mad, I agree with you. I, I totally agree that this is very strange that people don't understand 
that the colonial settler cannot be the victim. The victim is um, the one that is expelled, that is killed, that is maimed, that is tortured, and that is, um, you know, losing their home. This is the real victim. The Palestinians are the victims and other Arabs in other countries, of course. Um, but um, Israel has managed to bend um, the ear of the public in those countries with, of course, um, the support of their leaders. Um, they couldn't do it without the support of the leadership. Uh, so it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or uh, if you're a Republican in the United States, um, you act in a similar way towards Israel. Um, having said that, the opposition to Zionism in the United States is incredible in the Jewish sector. Uh, Jewish Voice for Peace is a great organization. I'm a member of it, though I'm not American, but I'm supportive, so I'm a member of it. Um, and uh, this is an organization that speaks openly, truthfully, uh, without fear, um, and in opposition to the large organs of organized uh, jury in the United States. And people more and more are listening to it. I agree with you that this is not going far enough. It will never seem to us um, sufficiently far, but um, it is doing the um, slow work that was done by anti-apartheid before the victory over South African apartheid. So this is a slow job. It, it takes many years and the Jewish state called Israel is much more powerful and has more powerful friends than South Africa, white South Africa ever had. And so it's an uphill struggle. It is going to be very difficult indeed. What can you say to listeners who are really not aware of the way in which Israel has been set upon the world stage, almost with the end goal of maintaining a constant state of war? To include what you just mentioned with Trump moving the embassy, it's not a coincidence. There's been a long tradition of Israel erasing Arabic names of towns, of streets, and Hebrewizing everything. Language has formed the center of Darvo here. It's not only making the Palestinians as our oppressor, it's also making out as if the history was never peaceful. We've always been at war. You know the story. Well, um, one of the questions that each of you who listen to this, um, you know, long talk between us is um, um, best asking themselves is uh, why is Israel always involved in fighting? Um, Israel is involved more in fighting than any nation on earth since its inception in 1948. Um, this is interesting when you think about um, other colonial states, you always find that um, they are involved in fighting all the time. I mean, the white states of America, before they were independent, the, the, the colonies were involved in fighting all the time. They were fighting 
um, the people that they wanted to uh, disown and dispossess and, and expel and kill. Um, and um, the same is true uh, in Algeria, the same is true in South Africa. Uh, South Africa was involved in wars, not just in South Africa against the black population of South Africa, but it was involved in Namibia and it was involved in other places, uh, of course, in Zimbabwe and, and, and other, um, other states in uh, independent states in Africa. And, and this is a pattern, um, you know, uh, but Israel has excelled in uh, the years, the seven and a bit decades since its inception, it was involved in so many wars that when I wrote the book, um, I had to give up on some of them uh, because uh, pe people don't even know about this uh, or that war. For example, in um, there were three years uh, between um, 1968 and 71 that were called the War of Attrition. This is a war that Israel has declared on Egypt and, and not for nothing that it was called the war of attrition. And they wanted to basically tire the Egyptians into submission. Um, this meant um, two million people who lived in the, um, state, the cities along the canal uh, were bombed out um, and became refugees in the rest of Egypt. Uh, it meant destroying um, the infrastructure of uh, um, Eastern Egypt to a point that even water was difficult to supply to soldiers um, along the canal. Um, so um, I didn't even have the space uh, or even the mental space to discuss such minor wars that though they lasted years are not even mentioned by anyone outside of Israel or Palestine or, or e Egypt because people don't know about them. But everything that I said about the other wars is true about those as well. So why is Israel involved in, you know, kind of 24-7 fighting? Well, um, I think I've already answered this um, in different ways. First of all, if you're running the biggest lab on earth uh, with millions of people playing their role as victims uh, and you're testing arm armaments on them, then yes, you have to fight all the time because you have to improve your products. You know, we are a capitalist society and we have to improve our products. So, you know, like Apple or Microsoft, we have to update um, our um, bombs and you know, missiles and guns and tanks and the rest of it all the time, whether it's uh, necessary or not. Uh, but this is the, the, the kind of uh, logic of capitalism. You have to innovate and, and change and, and, and invent new ways of killing all the time. So you have to fight all the time. You also have to fight all the time when people who are expelled are um, resisting. Now, they can't resist with tanks or they can't resist with, uh, you know, aeroplanes. And as you mentioned before, they can resist m with their bodies. Unfortunately, that's all they have and they can blow themselves up. And this is what they've done. And um, 
some people in the West, including Cherie Blair, when she visited Gaza, said that if she was in the situation uh, people uh, of Gaza find themselves in, she might have considered doing something like that herself. Um, not that he, she wanted to support this, but she said it as a human rights lawyer um, that um, was concerned about what is happening. Um, she's not concerned about this anymore because now she is uh, an advisor to NSO, um, as we found out um, recently um, uh, in, in the new project of, of the International Journalist Association. So um, people said this is all the Palestinians can do. Um, uh, the people who are pushed into a corner and cannot uh, do anything, they can't get out, um, they are with their back to the wall, what can they do? And yet they have the temerity to um, resist the occupier. This is unheard of. Um, you know, the Palestinians uh, are incredibly um, principled in terms of not accepting um, the, the occupier, not accepting the control of uh, Israel, um, not accepting apartheid. Um, I'm full of admiration for their, um, you know, ability to stand up against this without anything behind them, without anybody behind them and with very little support, um, but from the international community that itself has no uh, fangs. Uh, but um, what we have to um, realize is that, um, you know, blowing yourself up is not going to bring the end of Zionism. And most Palestinians understand that. What is the way out of this? Is the two-state solution off the table? Was that ever really on the table? <laughs> Two-state yeah. solution was um, basically a cover-up for continuing the occupation more energetically. It was never on the table. Uh, there was never a table. Um, there were never um, real negotiations. There was a hand forcing um, by the United States, uh, but uh, never um, where the Palestinians promised the state in any piece of paper that Israel is signed to. Um, and in Oslo, that wasn't the case, though a lot of people think that it was. So basically, um, there was never a two-state solution. It was just a slogan uh, that Israel agreed to take at the behest of the Americans so that people could be bamboozled into believing that peace is coming because we're talking to each other. We're not talking to each other. We were not talking to each other. We, the Israeli um, uh, controllers, occupiers, racists, uh, not including myself, of course, we're actually telling the Palestinians what we want them to do for us. For example, to use their police against their own people, to use their military organizations such as they are, which were um, armed by Israel, uh, to, um, in, you know, put Palestinians in jail and hold them uh, undemocratically behind bars and without um, um, a, ju a, ju a juridical pro process like we do in Israel. 
So um, first of all, there was never a two-state solution, uh, but people are still talking about it. And even good old Jeremy Corbyn spouted this as if he's never read a paper in his life. And uh, Joe Biden and, and of course all the others before him uh, continue to talk about something that they know never existed and never will because not because the Palestinians didn't agree to it, but because Israel has never agreed to it. It never agreed to have a Palestinian state. So let, let's bury this corpse because it's smelly. The other thing is, um, if um, I want to repeat this point because uh, I don't think you can say it enough. Uh, anyone waiting for change to happen um, and looking to the Israeli left um, it is, is bemusically uh, devoid of um, any connection to reality because there is no Israeli left. There was never a real left in Israel, but there was a left. Um, it was a socialist racist left, um, Zionist left, um, apartheid left, uh, but now even that doesn't exist. So uh, basically uh, change will not come and did not come from the um, uh, from the settler colonials uh, in, um, in Algeria, um, in Africa, and definitely not in South Africa. It's not the settler colonial society that moves towards change. Never. It, it does not move against itself. Um, how did change come in South Africa? Millions and tens and then hundreds of millions and then billions of people managed to sway their governments that resisted all calls for years to act against apartheid. The two refuseniks of this were the United States and UK that under Thatcher and, and, and President Reagan stayed until the bitter end supporting South Africa. And then they relented. And then it was possible with the forces of the whole world community and with the ANC um, that never uh, stopped the armed struggle to bring an end, and I would say a sort of an end, not a real end, to apartheid in South Africa, at least a legal end to legal apartheid, but not an end to apartheid in South Africa. So um, the first thing to say is that uh, Israeli apartheid, like apartheid in South Africa, is a problem of all of us. It's not a problem of the Palestinians. It's a problem, it's a disease that human society has to excise and to heal. And without the whole of human society, it will not be resolved. And this is what a lot of us are saying now for decades. Um, I'm in Britain saying to British people, you have created the Palestine problem. You have created it. You used the Zionist project and they used you. Um, and together you have created the Palestine problem. Now I'm waiting for you to do your bit. And you have created um, quite a lot of the problem of the South African apartheid. And you did something in the end, unwillingly and late, but you did something together with the rest of us to end it. There is no way I can see that without boycott, divestment and sanction, 
of the widest possible um you know catchment um that there will be an end to zionism and what we need is an end to zionism like we we needed an end to apartheid to the ideology and the machineries behind it that continue the project the project of control of a, a captive and um you know rightsless population is the project of zionism if you understand that you end you act to end it uh, to end it in a humane way it's not the people you need to end you don't, you don't need to expel the people the palestinians accept that israeli jews are living there and they are not asking for them to leave though i wouldn't be um surprised if they felt like that um, after what has happened to them in 70 something years however it is the jewish population of the um, controlling um, settler colonial project that is trying to get the Palestinians out of their country. Therefore, anyone wasting time and effort and, and energy in looking to Israeli society to become more humane is um, needs help, really needs professional help. That's, that's the only way I can put it. Is not there a deflection by many Western governments to get into bed with Zionism? When you say Boris Johnson's a Zionist, well, these are political conveniences for leaders. And it also absolves any kind of further understanding of what anti-Semitism meant within Europe's very dark history on this matter. Why, why would someone like Boris Johnson care about anti-Semitism, about real anti-Semitism? Why would he? Why, why would Trump care about it? Why would, um, you know, most um, undemocratic leaders in Europe, um, like Orban and others, care about racism? They are racist. They are actually not ashamed of admitting it. I mean, um, you know, Boris Johnson was talking in terms which I would not repeat here, but which you are aware of, about black people and people of the third world in terms that anybody else um, would um, find themselves uh, in, in court over. And, uh, you know, the British society is accepting him as prime minister and as leader. I, I think that's amazing. I think that's, that's sick, you know, it really is sick and sickening. But, you know, they don't care about this. Um, what they care is uh, the power struggle um, that they need to run in the Middle East uh, over oil and other things. Um, and Israel is useful for them. If it wasn't useful for them, it wouldn't be there by now. This is what I'm saying. If Israel was not useful to America uh, in its own plans of control, Israel wouldn't exist because it can't exist without the support of people like uh, the presidents and the prime ministers of the Western nations. Can there be a just peace in Palestine? A just peace in Palestine is possible um, whenever we want it. Uh, we, meaning um, most people in the world, not Israelis and Palestinians only, because the Israelis are um, poisoned by their own um, society in ways that we both described. So um, I think the Palestinians are moving now towards the idea for one state, which was their uh, position between uh, 1948 and 1988. For 40 years, the PLO 
um, and the organizations before it had a position of one democratic state in the whole of Palestine. Uh, as you well know, because you visited many times, Palestine is a very small country, one of the smallest country, countries uh, on this earth um, that used to be beautiful before Zionism arrived uh, and was destroyed in many ways by it. Uh, now, this country um, was um, a political unit for most of um, written history. Um, and, um, you know, it should be one political unit uh, with the same rights for everyone. There are a few problems, though. One, apartheid means that Israelis don't think that Palestinians have rights. Not just the Palestinians that don't have rights um, since 1967 or 48, actually, but Palestinians who have some rights under Israeli uh, constitutional legislation um, are losing those uh, increasingly and repeatedly. So I'm saying um, that the um, way to resolve this conflict is, of course, uh, you know, I mean, you know, Canada, I'm, you know, some people speak French and some people speak uh, English and most people speak both. Um, that's not a reason to kill each other. Uh, some people are Catholic and other pro uh, are Protestants and other are like myself, atheists. And that's not a reason I want to kill people of faith and they shouldn't try to kill me because I lack it. So um, there are examples of societies which are um, combining um, different identities, sometimes very different identities, uh, yet um, they have not become an apartheid society. There, there might be tensions um, and there might be a competition between the communities, but if these are democracies, they continue and they thrive and they become uh, really interesting societies. So uh, there is a solution. The, the solution was always there. The Palestinians suggested it in 1948 to the UN and the UN refused to accept it because of international pressure. So if we want a state of all its citizens, there are 14 million people between the sea and the river Jordan, 14 million people. More than half of them are Palestinians. Most Palestinians don't have any rights and never had them since 1948. So easy, you know, um, the solution is possible. Uh, it is a solution which is democratic, which is equitable, which in which no one has to kill anyone but they have to stop killing people, which is difficult for um, dogs that lived on killing to stop doing it. Um, I, I accept that. Uh, so the international community has to be the, the guard dog here um, uh, to, so that Israelis have to stop killing Palestinians because this is what is happening um, every week and every day uh, of every year. Um, they have got to stop controlling them and they have to accept um, one voice um, de democracy. Um, the South African whites have accepted it. Uh, they haven't implemented it, but they have accepted it, at least uh, on a legal basis. 
this is what the Palestinians are now offering the Israelis, and the Israelis have not deigned even to discuss it. Um, this is the only way you can resolve it. Um, either that or one state, which is an apartheid state from the Jordan um, to the sea, uh, which is controlled by a racist uh, project of um, settler colonials, uh, and which will sh push more and more Palestinians out of their own land by different ways, including pogroms, including uh, mass deportations, which has never stopped since 1948. So this is the story. The story is, is very easy on, the, on paper. How do you push it? Well, how was South Africa's apartheid um, stoppage realized? By pressure, by global pressure, and only by global pressure, following a period of apartheid um, being, um, you know, discussed everywhere, um, by the disgust that this um, arises, um, leading to uh, sanctions, to, to boycott, to divestment, to political um, divestment as well, you know, that people stop their relationship of all kinds with Israel, not with the territories under occupation, um, like the settlements. No, no, not like what the Europeans are doing. You don't actually act against the soldiers, you act against the generals, the politicians. The, the settlers are soldiers, they are sent by the, 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 the leaders. So you act against the soldiers? No, act against the generals, act against the leadership that is settling. Um, against every Israeli activity, uh, financial, um, cultural, um, political, um, industrial, and of course, military, um, all those uh, aspects of Israeli, Israeli actions should be boycotted, should be, uh, you know, academic, for example, artistic. Um, this is what happened with South Africa. You remember the sport um, boycott was very painful for, for South Africa. And now a lot of sportsmen in Britain, especially, are showing uh, a leading role in, in, against uh, this. People, uh, you know, young black people, young people uh, in Britain, uh, like low key um, from an Iraqi background, are doing great job in actually putting Israel in the, into the apartheid corner. That's what we need. We need to educate the world population. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> when I say this, uh, you know, I think, God, will we ever manage to do it? But how did people manage to do it in the 70s and 80s and early 90s? They managed to do it about South Africa and we should manage to do it about Israel. And it's time that we started trying for real, I think.